You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 23 is where we are this evening in our study of the Word of God. Matthew chapter 23. We read beginning at verse 29. We'll read down to verse 39. Matthew 23 beginning with verse 29. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, We would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? On account of this, Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you did not want it. Behold, Your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Go to our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we delight in these times we have to meet together. Thankful for every way that you meet our needs through this means of grace that You've ordained, the public gathering, the public worship of Your people, the church. And yet, Lord, even as we worship You tonight, we are mindful of the day that we long for when not only will sin around us be eliminated, but sin within us. We long for the day when we will no longer battle with indwelling sin. We long for the day when the war that we experience in the process of progressive sanctification will be over. We'll have a new body that matches the new us and we will be conformed to the image of Jesus. But until then, Lord, would You work in us, Your people, in such a way that we mortify the deeds of the body, that we put to death the things that once characterized us and instead put on the new clothes that belong to us in Your Son, and live lives that are befitting of worshipers. Tonight, Lord, we turn our attention to Your Word now, having been blessed to sing Your praises together and pray together and greet one another in a way that encourages each other. These are 
are all sweet things to our souls, but Lord, we now need the instruction of Your Word, which is our food, and we pray that You would be at work in this next hour to encourage Your people and to exhort us along our journey. Strengthen us, Lord. Fortify us in the things that You've built in us. May it in every way accomplish that that would please You in the life of Your church. We're always mindful there are people who need Your Son. We ask for their salvation even tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We must never forget that when we're hearing or reading the words of Jesus, we are hearing the God of the Bible. I know that's obvious to us, but you do know that is disputed even by some who claim to be Christians. What I mean is they will say, well, this is what Jesus said, but this is what Paul said, as if what Paul writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit somehow doesn't accord with what Jesus said. Or they'll pit Jesus against the words of the Old Testament, as though you have one kind of God in the Old Testament, and then Jesus shows up and we meet with someone altogether different. No, when you hear, when you read the words of Jesus, you are reading, you are hearing the God of all Scripture, Old Testament and New. When Israel met with Jesus face to face, Israel was meeting with her God. Jesus has already pointed this out, that one of the reasons why they didn't receive Him and didn't believe in Him is they underestimated who the Messiah really was and is. They would acknowledge He was the Son of David, but they didn't understand He was David's Lord. Matthew twenty-two forty-one. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the, the, the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is He? They said to Him, the Son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls Him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls Him Lord... How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They would acknowledge that the Messiah was David's son. They couldn't understand how he, how he could possibly be David's Lord. How indeed could this be? Well, the answer, of course, is the miracle of the incarnation. That's what we're celebrating this time of year. Matthew one twenty three: Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the amazing truth that we learn from the Word of God. God, in Jesus of Nazareth, had come to dwell with men on earth. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The Word is the Creator of all things. And from all eternity, God. Well, John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who was Jesus of Nazareth? The Son of God, which is to say, God in human flesh. John 14, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way 
and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The fullness of deity dwelling in Jesus bodily. God is one, but has forever existed in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the Son of God, the eternal Son, had come to earth, born of a virgin. Now we find Jesus, Israel's God, delivering the promise of Israel's judgment to the religious leaders who represented the nation's spiritual condition. He's speaking to the leaders, but they represent the condition of the people as a whole. There's always been an Israel within Israel. There's always been a remnant. At this time, there was a remnant. But looking at the vast majority of Israelites at the time of Jesus on the earth, most were unbelieving. The nation had proven unfaithful. And so here you have Israel's God telling Israel face to face that a massive judgment is on its way. A judgment they've been warned about, a judgment they fully deserve. And what has just happened in this temple encounter that we've been studying together, what has just happened demonstrates why this is the end for Israel as the representatives of God in this age. This is Israel's God, Jesus, Israel's God, telling a people that have been chosen to be God's witness to the earth that they have forfeited their role for this time due to unbelief. On the other side of His death and resurrection and ascension, the people who will now represent the name of God to the earth will be the church. No longer God making Himself known through the nation Israel. They had sold their birthright for the world's pot of stew. What He says to them is really a climax. They've been experiencing devastating judgments throughout their history. Their current situation with Rome demonstrates that. They've experienced deportation. They've experienced slavery. They've known a kind of restoration to their land, but, but one that still left them under foreign rule. But now their disobedience has reached its, its high point. Verses 32 and 33, they will crucify their Messiah. Verse 34, they will continue in their rejection of their Messiah. Verse 35, they will confirm their judgment as the serpent's offspring. Verse 36, they will soon experience a massive judgment so that Christ is summing up their entire history almost as He's delivering their future to them in the form of promised judgment. But as we'll see tonight, He doesn't just declare their judgment. He also at the same time declares God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to His promises, God's faithfulness to His purposes, therefore God's faithfulness even to this people, to Israel. And we'll see that when we reach the end of the verses tonight.
We'll look at this under three headings. I'll just mention them as we come to them. First of all, as we hear what our Lord says, we hear of a people who have rejected gracious love. What has Israel done? Why is this coming upon Israel? Because she has rejected God's gracious love to her. Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you did not want it. Repetition of the address speaks of the intensity of the address. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. What our Lord says is not without passion. What our Lord says is not without pathos. He cares. He grieves. Hear the words of Jesus. You hear the words of God. You hear the words of Yahweh. You hear the perspective, the attitude of Almighty God. And here we listen as Jesus is grieved over their spiritual condition. It's the very same passion that was on display when He made His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Luke tells us He wept, Luke 19.41, and when He drew near and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The rejection of their Messiah marks a real turning point in their history. The words of Jesus here expand to match the perspective of His divine nature. He, he's speaking about something that goes beyond just His time on the earth, precedes His time on the earth. What He talks about will follow His time on the earth. His words reflect grief over everything that God has done for Israel and everything that Israel has spurned. All of God's kindnesses to this people. All of God's patience with this people. All of God's compassion toward that people. All of God's strivings with that people. All of it wrapped up in Christ's passion for this people and His indictment of this people. This is why the words of Jesus sound very much like what you hear earlier in the Old Testament. I mean, this is what God has been continually doing with His people, pleading with them over their covenant unfaithfulness and the judgment that is going to come as a result. Let me just give you two examples. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, God's relationship to the nation is described this way. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and 
burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they've refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is God's history with His people. This is how He has graciously dealt with them and pleaded with them to turn from their sins, but they would not. And here is God in human flesh. Here is Israel's God now pleading with her face to face. And she will not listen. When Jesus speaks of Jerusalem's sins, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, I know you know, but I just want to point it out. The city stands as an emblem for all of Israel. A city hasn't done this. The people of Israel have done this. Jerusalem, the city that is emblematic of the entire nation. And so when he talks about his gracious desires for the children of this city, how often have I wanted to gather your children together? Again, he's talking about Yahweh's love for His people, Israel. And so the guilt of the people is great because the grace of God toward them has been great. And this is grievous. It's what is happening. Of all the advantages that one would have being a Jew, of all the graces God had given to this people, perhaps it's true to say other than Himself, other than giving Himself to this people, the greatest gift He ever gave them was His Word. His oracles. This is what Paul puts at the head of the blessings in Romans 3. Remember, he raises the question after he's been explaining that Jew and Gentile stand on equal ground in terms of their need for God's forgiveness, their need for God's salvation, their need for God's grace. He anticipates offense. Then what advantage would there be in being a Jew? And he says in Romans 3.1, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. We as Gentiles might expect that he would say, well, there's no advantage, but that's not what he says. He says much in every way. And then he says this, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. You were given revelation. You were given the light of knowledge found in the Scriptures and found in the prophets and found in those who taught you the truth as given by God. This was your greatest privilege. This stands at the head of the list. Well, you need to remember that those oracles were not just words of instruction and not just words of encouragement and exhortation. They also included words of reproof. God loved His people by reproving His people. God loved His people by warning His people. How many of you know tonight that it's a gift from God that He would reprove us? that when it comes to His people, if we wander, it is, it is a loving gift for the Lord to call us, to 
to a place of repentance and obedience and renewal. Tonight we're going to be partaking of the Lord's table together. And in the context of the Lord's Supper, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven: whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. I mean, this is a God-given gift to us for regular examination with respect to sin. What, what is our profession regarding the death of Jesus for our sins versus our practice? Are we, are we going on living in that for which Jesus died? Let a person examine himself then and so, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul is saying God does discipline His children and that is a mark of His love. And so when Israel sinned and when Israel strayed, God was faithful to reprove them, to warn them, to show them the way of repentance, that they would avoid judgment. He sent prophets to them even when they didn't want the prophets. And that was covenant faithfulness on the part of God. He had already warned them. Read Deuteronomy 27-30. He warned them. In terms of the Mosaic Covenant, there would be blessings for covenant faithfulness, but there would be curses for covenant unfaithfulness. And told them in advance, you will prove unfaithful and be removed from your land and experience great difficulty. But in the end, God would be faithful, prove His faithfulness, despite their unfaithfulness. So a part of God's covenant faithfulness was when they would stray God would send messengers to confront their sin. What did Israel do with those prophets? Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her. Your history, Israel, is one of persecuting and killing those who are sent to you when God is just loving you. The nation had high points, of course. There were times when the nation was healthier than at other times. But if you look at the history of Israel throughout the ages, there's this pattern that always trended back in the direction of idolatry and unbelief. And one of the characteristic marks of their idolatry and unbelief was they would persecute and kill, in some cases, those who brought them the Word of God. John Calvin wrote this, it's as if Christ had said, Thou who oughtest to have been a faithful guardian of the Word of God, a teacher of heavenly wisdom, the light of the world, the fountain of sound doctrine, the seat of divine worship, a pattern of faith and obedience, art a murderer of the prophets, so that thou hast acquired a certain habit of sucking their blood. Well, the final nail in their spiritual coffin is now their rejection of someone greater than a prophet. He's the true prophet. Now they're rejecting God's Son. Now they're rejecting their Lord. Now they're rejecting their King, their God in human flesh. In fact, Jesus already in this temple encounter gave a parable that shows the outrageous nature of their response to Him. Remember this in Matthew 21, the parable of the tenants? Verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. 
And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? So, what do we have here? We have a people who reject the gracious love of God. Christ describes Jerusalem in terms of a history of murder when it comes to the messengers that God has graciously sent to her to warn her of her sin and call her to repentance. Now, God is with us. God has come. He is face to face with His people and they reject Him. And yet, notice in the context of that rejection, what he says about his desire for Israel. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I mean, let this sink in. He says that the Lord's desire for this nation, for this people, ethnic Israel, is simply to care for them the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. What does that speak of? Protection, care, safety, guidance. The Lord's desires toward Israel are loving desires, good desires, saving desires. And they are enduring desires. He says, how often I wanted to do this. Again and again throughout His earthly sojourn, our Lord is meeting with the hateful unbelief of sinful human beings. And yet, his love for Israel is not diminished. How often he has desired this. It's selfless, isn't it? Despite the way they treated him, these are his desires for them. Which is why he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Which is why his outcry, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, expresses love even in the face of their hatred. We've said it the last couple of Sundays, I'll say it again. One of the things that makes sin so sinful is it's not only an attack on God's law, it's an attack on God's love. It is returning evil for good. And so then he expresses his, having described them, having described his desire for them, he then describes his disappointment with them. when he says in verse 37, and you did not want it. You did not want it. I wanted it, but you didn't want it. I wanted to care for you, but you wouldn't have it. I want you to remember that when we talk about the sovereignty of God in salvation, we're not talking about some cold kind of determinism. We're not talking about God expressing these things in such a way that there's no desire on His part for the salvation of those who will be lost forever. Just the opposite. What you find consistently in the Word of God is God would rather save than judge. You do know that God has this capacity in Himself. It's something we can't even fully identify with. But He has the capacity to desire things He has chosen not to decree. He hasn't decreed the salvation of every human being, yet He could desire it. And the desire be genuine. So that God is to be praised completely for every person who is saved. And every person who will be lost forever is completely responsible for their damnation. 
God is completely responsible for all salvation. Man is responsible for his own damnation. When God saves, He intervenes. He saves men, not just from the wrath of God. He saves men from themselves. <laughs> Praise the Lord, He saved me from me as well as from His wrath. He could have warned me of His wrath, but if He had just left me to me, I would have never turned to Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but instead God intervened in our case and granted us repentance and faith in His Son. When God saves, He has intervened. What happens when God judges? He simply leaves men to themselves. This glorious, supposedly glorious thing that men want, free will, free will, free will. Well, if God leaves you to your free will, you're going to perish. Is that what you want? I want God to intervene in my case, don't you? So men left to themselves, what do they do? They go on and they're stubborn rebellion against God and their stubborn rejection of His grace, just as Israel demonstrates in these verses. The desire of Jesus toward them, gracious, but their response to that grace, scandalous. As they reject not just the prophets and the messengers sent to them, but God in human flesh. Israel's God stands before her face to face and they don't want Him. So a people who reject gracious love. Second thing we see, a people then rejected with gracious love. He's already told us that He loves them, verse 37, and yet He speaks judgment. Verse 38, Behold, take note of this, your house is being left to you desolate. He alerts them to the judgment He pronounces. Behold, take note of this. What does He mean when He says your house is being left to you desolate? Commentators debate over this. Is He talking about the city of Jerusalem as the house? Is He talking about the nation Israel as the house? Is He talking about the temple that He's standing in at that very moment? I agree with D.A. Carson when he says, there's no reason that all three are not included. Because what we're really talking about here is the blessing and glory of God are being removed from Israel. As I said, she will no longer be God's representative on the earth during this age. The glory is removed. The house is left abandoned. John MacArthur commented, Ezekiel 11.23 described Ezekiel's vision of the departure of the Shekinah glory in his day. The glory left the temple and stood on the Mount of Olives. Exactly the same route Christ followed here. He will depart from the temple, chapter 24, verse 1, never to return. Makes his way to the Mount of Olives. The glory of God in the face of His Son removed the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, simply the visible manifestation of what is taking place here. R.T. France commented, while the house might refer to Israel as a whole, the context here directly before chapter 24 indicates that the immediate reference is to the temple where the words are spoken. 
whose fate will symbolize God's judgment on His people. The verse translates literally, Behold, your house is left or abandoned to you, deserted. The verb is the one used in verse 23. Speaking of neglect, it therefore speaks not so much of the physical condition of the temple as of the fact that God has departed from it. Its physical destruction is only the outward completion of God's repudiation of it, which will be symbolized in chapter 24, verse 1, when Jesus leaves it never to return. The repeated second person pronoun to you is unfortunately omitted in the Revised Standard Version, emphasizing that it is now just that, your house, not God's house. Jeremiah 12.7 is an example of a similar warning which preceded the previous destruction of the temple by, by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. He loves them, but they're going to be judged just as God's covenant with them told them they would be. Deuteronomy 27-30. through 30. So, it's important that you understand this judgment is real. We see it to this very day. I said it's not Israel who represents the true God in the world. It's you. It's the church. But what this isn't is a cancellation of the unconditional promises and purposes related to ethnic Israel. What God has said He's going to do with the Jewish people, He is still going to do. Paul explains in Romans chapter 11 what, what our Lord is doing here, what it means and what it doesn't mean. What it will mean, this, this partial hardening, this, this time of judgment that you and I are living in right now, what it will mean is salvation for the nations. God now turns His attention to the outpouring of salvation throughout the earth, the gathering in of the nations. What it does not mean is that God is not able to return to His gracious focus on national Israel. You'll make a mistake if you think that's what this means. That now God is completely through with ethnic Israel. In terms of the promises, the covenant promises that He made with that people. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 11. Look there with me if you would real quickly. Let's read this together. Romans chapter 11. Beginning with verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, in Romans 11, 11, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection, it's a real rejection, isn't it, dear ones? If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. 
If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Oh, those foolish Jewish people. How wise we Gentiles have been to receive the gospel and to receive God's Son. Not seeing that this is the sovereign outworking of God's saving plan. Your salvation is not explained by your wisdom. And it's certainly not explained by the fact that you're not Jewish. It's explained by the grace of God. Put away your arrogance, you see. Verse 19, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Notice the full responsibility of man for what he rejects. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. He's saying, listen, right now it is true. Every unbeliever, including Jewish unbelievers, enemies of the gospel. But with respect to what God has planned for that people... There's still a purpose to be worked out. God has chosen them to put His own glory on display in the way that He works with them. They're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has, who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. God's punishment of their sins in this time of rejection, long foretold, Yet it doesn't mean that God has abandoned His plans for that people. And their future will include a great outpouring of salvation at the end of the age. And that's what verse 39 speaks of. A people who've, great, who've rejected God's gracious love to them. A people as a result who are judged despite God's gracious love for them. He judges them. Verse 39, a people regathered one day with gracious love. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me. 
until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice some of the elements of verse 39. First of all, authority, I say to you. Again, here is Jesus speaking with divine authority. I am telling you what is coming. Finality, from now on you will not see me. What does he mean by that? Well, this is the end of his public ministry. This is it. Come to an end. And he's about to die. And then he'll be raised. And then he will ascend into heaven. And his next coming will bring judgment and salvation. And the salvation aspect is captured in those words, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is, when he returns, Israel will have a change of heart. Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. What a different response he's, he's envisioning and speaking of compared to the one he's met with in the temple right now. This is what he heard from crowds as he made his way into Jerusalem, but he knew even then it was superficial. One day, he says, it's going to be genuine. Those who have rejected him will lose him forever. He will be their judge. But those who will receive him, who will look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn, who will repent and believe, those who will receive him by the grace of God will have him forever. He will be their king. Romans eleven twenty six, And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer, will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Dear ones, God doesn't say things He doesn't do. And that is what is at stake when you talk about the distinction between Israel and the church. It is an understanding that everything God has promised He will do in all the various realms of salvation, all the various promises contained in His saving work, including those promises that have to do with an ethnic people, Israel, all of it will be fulfilled in all of its fullness so that God's glorious grace will be on display for all eternity in all of its richness. What has God ever promised that He didn't do? What has happened with Israel is not an accident. What is happening with the church is not plan B. What we're witnessing is the outworking of God's saving plans that were written down from all eternity before the earth was ever formed. And here is the Creator. Here is Emmanuel. Here is God with us. Speaking to this people through their leaders that have been graced by God from their very beginning to bear forth the witness of His name, but now rejected and judged because they have refused Him. They did not recognize the time of their visitation. And it's going to mean, and it, He's going to talk about it more in chapter 24, it's going to mean their judgment. But judgment is not for forever in their case. There's a great day of salvation coming. Until then, it's salvation and mercy for the nations. But God is not finished with Israel. That is, elect Israel. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you 
for your faithfulness. Thank you that man's unfaithfulness will never thwart the promises that you've made. They're gracious and unconditional. What you have determined to do, you always do. I pray that tonight as we think about our own relationship with you, that there would be no arrogance in our hearts, no pride, no boasting, not in our wisdom, not in our supposedly soft hearts, if that's how some would explain their salvation, not in the case of our children by our tremendous parental influence, but Lord, rather we would all have our mouths closed in every way except one, that is, thank you, Almighty, gracious, merciful, loving God, for having mercy upon us in Jesus. Thank you that when we were blind, you opened our eyes. Thank you that when we were enslaved, you set us free. Thank you that when we were dead, you raised us from our spiritual graves. Thank you that you unstopped our deaf ears. Thank you that you said, let there be light, and you shined your light into our hearts to give the knowledge of your glory in the face of your Son. Thank you for granting us hearts of flesh instead of stone. Thank you for granting us repentance and faith. Thank you for making us your people. And may we be faithful with the gospel you've entrusted to us, knowing that you desire the salvation of all mankind, even though you've not decreed it. And Lord, may we trust you with the things you've not revealed and simply act in the light of the things you have revealed and be faithful evangelists until we meet our Savior face to face. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us and loving us as you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.